Jackie Lockie, your financial planning maestro. This series of podcasts is aimed at financial planning professionals and also those who are looking to enter the financial planning profession. We will be talking during the podcast about all things certified financial planner certification related, talking to other CFPs around the world, and also we will be dropping in on some new entrants who've just entered the financial planning profession, and we'll be checking up along the way on a regular basis with them to see how they're getting on. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Jackie Lockie, your financial planning maestro. And in today's podcast, we are talking all things Certified Financial Planner related with a very special person and a real expert and bookworm, uh, and that is Marlene Outrim. Hello, Marlene. Hello, Jackie. Thank you for inviting me to do this podcast. My pleasure. Welcome to the show. And we have lots and lots of things to talk about, um, about your business, about unique family wealth, um, about books, uh, and a recent book that you have uh, just written. Um, So we're going to get into all of that as well during today's episode. Um, So I'm just going to start off at the very beginning, well, nearly at the very beginning of everything, um, the very beginning of your journey to become a certified financial planner. Um, And tell us a bit about how you came across the CFP um, and why you decided to become a CFP professional. Well, obviously, I came across the CFP through the wonderful Institute of Financial Planning, the IFP. Um, But I was actually introduced to um, financial planning itself and cash flow modelling with from a um, advisor whose office I shared when I set up on my own. He suggested I rent a room and I could use his reception services and what have you. And he was obviously very much uh, before his time because he had a power planner who did cash flow modeling. And he was quite generous and said, you can use him. And he introduced me to cash flow modeling. And through him, I then uh, learned about Paul Etheridge, listened to some of Paul's tapes about how he conducted meetings, and I thought that's how I want to run my meetings, and got introduced to the Institute of Financial Planning, started to attend, and realised that that was the way to go. That was the way I wanted to forge my uh, professional career, and realising that in order to get the best qualification and show people that I could be a true financial planner was to get the CFP. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I think the the IFP has uh, has been responsible for many of us <laughs> really understanding what the difference between financial advice and financial planning, haven't they? It really has. And the thing about the IFP is that uh, everybody was so helpful and yeah. friendly. You could go there and ask people about their businesses, ask for advice and assistance, and people would be all too willing to give um, and help you out. So that was the, the one thing I liked about the IFP, that you could go to meetings, you could go to conferences. And at that time, I was probably one of the few women attending, perhaps the only one sometimes. But I felt at home there. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say, I completely agree because I did too. I can remember going to my first conference, the IFP conference in 1999. And I think you were only one of, uh, I think, three women that I can remember being in the room when we had the black tie dinner in the evening. 
Yeah, I mean, I can remember the old days when it was at Cambridge. Yeah. Was it Cambridge? And yes. um, 1992 was when I joined the IFP. Gosh, wow. Yeah. So we're going back some years now. Yeah, yeah. And so, but even before you got into financial planning, I know from many discussions that we've had over the years that you have other kind of relevant roles that perhaps to an outsider might seem not terribly relevant of things that you've done kind of in a previous life before becoming a financial planner, haven't you? Yes. Well, I started off really um, doing admin work and I went to night school to do accountancy and I thought I'd become a company secretary, but I quickly realised that I wanted to work with people, not numbers. And, And so I went and trained to become a probation officer. And that's what I did for 13 years. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a very demanding job. It was very varied. But the skills that I was taught uh, were immense. I was taught family therapy, transactional analysis, group work, um, marital studies, um, teaching to larger groups. And and it was absolutely uh, fantastic. But the role was changing over that time and it was becoming more policing. And I thought, I don't want to end up for the rest of my uh, working life doing this. And I started to look around. And Really, I wanted to work for myself, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And at the time, financial services were beckoning all of sundry to come get trained, set up your own business. And um, quite naively, as my chief probation officer said, when I left, that I was going into uncharted waters. I went and joined um, an investment company selling uh, products, tied products, they would call it now, um, for that company. And I was actually appalled at the lack of professionalism Mm. and the product bashing and people. But in some ways, I was in an awesome. Advisors would say to me, I'm going to see a client today. I'm going to... I'm going to sell an investment of 20,000, which was a lot in those days. Yeah. I'm going to do a bond. And I used to think, that's amazing. How do they know they're going to do that before they actually go to the <laughs> Yes. Have you even <laughs> spoken to the client? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, uh, and I went around saying, I don't know how to sell. I really don't know how to sell. Can you teach me how to sell? But some of the methods were so contrived. So they'd say, well, when you come to get them to sign a document, cover it up with a piece of paper and don't ask them to sign it. Ask them to authorise it. I was just appalled. I thought, I can't do things like that. Yes. Um, and I, re- I nearly left. I thought I-, I come from what I called a profession. I was respected by uh, the legal and judiciary uh, communities as well and I thought I can't do this Mm. Um, and so I then joined an independent financial advisor and that was better because you could choose from an array of products so I wasn't tied I wasn't restricted and that gave me the freedom that I sought Um, but I still felt slightly frustrated and I sort of made my mark with financial um, uh, independent taxation So I would go in and see couples and say, well, I can save you a certain amount of money if you just change your accounts and have them separately rather than jointly. And it was an introduction. And then I started to do sort of cash flow planning, would you believe it's on a a, a fat packet type of effect. (laughs) Yes. 
I mean, it was very rudimentary, but I knew that's the, that's the way I wanted to go. Yeah. But then I realised when I couldn't, I, I thought I couldn't sell. The only way I could introduce myself and uh, work with the client was to go back to what I knew and what I learned in the probation service. So very, very basic, you know, um, just, just know the name of your client. Go with no preconceived ideas or perceptions treat everybody as a unique individual and applying those it meant I got a much better relationship with the clients yeah yeah and then I went around and I was seeing clients who'd seen an advisor and they said we've seen them once they sold me this or I did this investment and I haven't seen them again but I really would like to do something about inheritance tax. Or I don't think I've got enough income, but I've got all these investments. What should I do? And then I realized these people needed somebody to give them ongoing advice. And they needed a relationship. And they needed a professional relationship, apart from being friendly. And so that's how I set out my business. That's what I, That was my purpose of my business, um, yeah. to do that. And so all the personal skills that I learned as a probation officer, came into their own, really. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and it's, it's funny, isn't it, how we, so many people, we've, both you and I have come across in the profession over the years, have always say they've kind of fallen into it, into financial planning and into, into the financial advice world. Um, and, uh, but I think you, you can bring, as long as you kind of, you take off the labels off the things that you did previously, there's so mm -hmm. much that, you know, clearly you have bought and do bring to the table, you know, to benefit both the profession, the wider profession and, and also your clients on a daily basis. You know, the, there must, I mean, that must have been quite a revelation for those clients to have you with them each, each year upon year. And some of those clients are still with me. Yeah, yeah. Some of my clients have been with me for 30 years, 25 years, uh, because yeah. of that ongoing relationship. Yes. But apart from the ongoing relationship, and, you know, some some you might call friends, I still give them sound advice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the that's the ethics in you, isn't it, Marlene? <laughs> ethics through yeah. and through. Um, so let's, you know, the, your business model when you started and, you know, let's just talk about how it's developed over the years. Do you offer now for a new client to come? Is it, you know, do you offer a different service for different clients or is it kind of, is it financial plan? You know, you get a full financial plan um, or, or or nothing? Our proposition is based on cash flow modelling. Yeah. So um, if people don't want to go down that route, we don't take them on. Yeah. So our advice uh, is based on that the foundation of the cash flow modelling and the client's objectives. So that's uh, we have a unique family wealth programme on part one. It's the six-step process of financial planning. Yes. Um, and you can put different labels on that. But part one is our uh, discovery meeting and we lay it all out in our terms um, and they pay a fee for that. Yeah. And I won't offset the fee because I think it devalues the cash flow. Yeah. But we let the clients know that once they've seen the cash flow and they're happy with it, if they don't want to go any further, they can just pay their fee and walk away. They yeah. never walk away, but we, we give them that permission and freedom um, they don't feel obliged. No. And what we say to them is, 
what we will do first is look at your current situation. If we make no changes at all, this is what will happen. And again, I think that gives people comfort and reassurance that we're not going to be selling them something straight away. Yes. Yeah. And I've been having those conversations quite recently with people going through their CFP case studies. And we are, we're looking at, obviously, in those there, you know, fictitious case study, as you know, and mm -hmm. it's about the size of the whole rather than if there is one. But I guess that's quite a common theme with many clients that you, you may have come across, is it? Yes, it is, because even if they come brandishing a pension policy or, or something, we always say, we'll put that to one side and we'll look at it at some stage. We want to know about you and how you want to live the rest of your life. What do you yeah. want to do? Have you thought about it? And we, we, we focus on that in our first meeting. And if we do that and we do it well, the client will come on board, they'll accept the fee. And then we generally have the strategy meeting, which is includes all the cash flow um, analysis and research. Um, we make various recommendations. Well, they give us a brief, basically. So through that um, engagement of the cash flow, they will tell us that they're concerned about inheritance tax, they're concerned about high income tax uh, payments that they're making, uh, what they want to do about their children, you know, anything like that. It will all come in that. And we have a brief then for a written financial plan. So they're saying, telling us what they want to address rather than us telling them what they must address or what they should address. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's it. It's, you know, the financial plan gives you that structure and the six-step process helps you, doesn't it? But it's not something to be that rigid you know you it gives you also the flexibility it's uh, to you know be able to accommodate different clients wishes and also their priorities i mean i guess you know many clients have what they feel is the top priority but but actually you might feel there are other things that are more of a priority well i always say it's it's not my life it's theirs it's not my money it's theirs so however they want to spend their lives or however they want to spend their money it's up to them yeah often clients will say to me is this enough when we look at their cost of their standard of living and I say I haven't a clue <laughs> <laughs> it's your life you know yes. we've got some clients who spend a hundred thousand a year and others who spend twenty thousand a year yes yeah and in your experience you know with your clients is that their one of their biggest worries that you come across you know is, have I got enough that is one of the worries, particularly if they're uh, still working and they're thinking about retirement. Will I have enough in retirement? I've got all these plans, pension schemes. I don't know what they will do, what will they, will, they will provide for me in the future. And it's helping them to make sense of them all and putting their finances and their assets in some order so they can understand. Yes. I mean, you've heard all the stories about people coming with boxes and envelopes of documents and policies and they can't make sense of them yeah and, and that's the other thing that the cash flow does it gives them a nice neat order of what they own what they earn and what they can expect yes yeah it sets it all out in nice easy to understand terms doesn't it yeah and yeah. it's not complicated it's not overly detailed yeah and and that's where your first book came in, wasn't it? Because your first book was all about retirement. 
Yes, well, a number of my clients are, are retired. Um, what I was um, observing was that even coming up to retirement, people were talking about retirement in different ways. When I'd heard people talk about retirement years ago, it was finish work, uh, just have a rest from all those working years, all the times they had to get up early, go out and slave away and just have a rest and uh, a respite and maybe do a spot of gardening, um, but no, nothing too arduous. And what I was finding is that people didn't want to give up work when they reached so-called retirement age. Mm -hmm. They maybe wanted to phase or they maybe wanted to do something different, but they still wanted purpose in life. And also I found that they, they knew they'd acquired skills and experience, which they were loath to give up. Yes. And society has a way of ignoring those skills and experience when people get older, instead yeah. of acknowledging that they've actually got an abundance of them that can contribute to society. So that's what I was seeing. And also, you know, if clients have been successful and earned money and saved, they had nice houses, they went on holidays, um, they stayed in nice hotels, had, had quality cars, they gave to their children. They were very active, they were health conscious, and they wanted to continue to do all of those things well on to retirement. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And I think I've seen it with people who have, you know, where factories have shut down here close to me locally, where people have initially said, that's it, you know, I'm in my late 50s, I'm actually going to stop, I'm just going to do nothing. And, you know, a couple of months on, six months on, they're all saying, oh, I need to get a job. You know, I want to keep mm. my brain ticking over. You know, yeah. I've still got good skills that, that I can offer. And it doesn't matter essentially what kind of job you had before you retired. Um, everybody still has skills to offer, don't they? Yeah. I mean, some people just want want to do voluntary work. They don't necessarily want the pay, but yeah. they want a purpose in life. And so yeah. I found that... Um, a number of my clients do all sorts of things. They're very active, uh, well into their late 70s, 80s. Mm. It's quite amazing. Yeah. Well, I guess, and if you're keeping yourself, your brain active and doing something that you mm. love, then that helps, you know, with physical health as well. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so then that led you on. What's happened between then and now? Because your new book, as you're turning into a little media star, rather a big <laughs> media star, um, your new book, uh, Cascading Your Wealth. Tell us about how that came about after after your first book about looking into you know, people's retirement. Well, over the last two to three years, I think I thought about writing this book. And uh, again, it was prompted by clients. Um, whenever we got to the, the the subject of inheritance tax, there were all these there were always these questions uh, they wanted to ask and um, issues they wanted to explore. So, for example, if it was um, should we give money to our children, there'd, there'd be a discussion, or I would encourage a discussion about the children. Did they want to give to the children equally? Did they want to give to the children now? Did they want to give it later? How much control did they want to give? It was not just about how much did you want to give. And so there'd, there'd be answers like, well, we'd be happy to give it to Jane and help her with the property, but if we give it to Johnny, he'll just splurge it all on, on nothing, you know. And So we'd have long discussions about this. And so what's the best way um, to 
give to your children or give to you know charity or whatever. We had some clients who had no children, but large inheritance tax and they wanted to mitigate it. So they had a number of nieces and nephews and we have set, helped them set up various trusts for all these nieces and nephews who've accessed some of the money as they've gone on education trips, as they've gone on to university and that sort of thing. So it's given those clients um, a real sense of satisfaction that they're helping all these nieces and nephews. And, and now as they're being born as well, we set up a new trust for the new, we just set up a new trust for the newborn. Um, so it, it's, it's lovely having those kind of discussions, but the more discussions I had about this, I thought I need to write about this. Yeah, I need to set something down. And it was lockdown that gave me <laughs> the impetus. And also um, Rethink Press, who were promoting their coaching course for writing a book. And I thought, if I don't join this course, I'll never write this book. I'd, I'd collated some information and I'd done a bit of research, but you know what it's like. You find other things to do. Um, yeah. And so I went on this course and it has a very strict disciplined method um, of writing a book which I followed and they say you can write a book in 90 days and I tell you you can write a book in 90 days it takes much longer than that to get it edited reviewed and published (laughs) but you can write it in 90 days and I think what is for me what is unique about this book is the that it's not just about the money. It's not just about saying, well, you know, there's lots of talk, isn't there, around the world about the, you know, the baby boomers as they are passing it away, that there's something like $66 trillion worth of money and wealth that is cascading down to other Mm -hmm. generations. But it's not just about the money, is it? It's all about, you know, you talk in your book about the emotional and the psychological factors of giving that money away and, you know, thoughts and things that people need to think about. Yes, because, you know, a lot of people are worried about long-term care, you know, which is an issue. And you may be very well in your health, but, you know, if you get dementia, there's nothing... There's not a lot you can do about it. No. There's still very many people who haven't written wills, haven't set up powers of attorney. And I think sometimes it's just um, just addressing that, that issue. Not many people, it, it's not a very pretty subject, is it? It's not a subject everybody wants to sort of sit and discuss no. about your impending, your, your impending death. But it is going to happen. And so do you want to leave a mess for your family or do you want to have your affairs in order and make sure everything is sorted out to your satisfaction and the way you want it to be? And that's what the book's about, really. And, you know, just getting you to think about other matters, such as if you've remarried, if your children remarry, um, how you want your, you know, how you want to be remembered, this, this sort of thing. Um, so, okay, it's it's not necessarily a pleasant subject to have to look at, but I think it's one that we should do. Um, yeah. And it doesn't really, you shouldn't wait until you're old because you can do it. Once you start to acquire assets, that's when you should start to think about writing a will because you yeah. can rewrite it later on. Yeah. And it's a good habit to get into doing these yeah. things early, isn't it? Because it's just like going to the gym. You know, if you don't go to the gym till you're 50 and then think, right, I'm going to have to go five days a week. Uh, you know, as we know, with New Year's resolutions, it's not going to happen for very no. long. That's right. 
Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think, you know, I don't know whether, you know, being able to, I remember um, talking to George Kinder about, you know, his three great questions. And his last one was, you know, if you only had, you know, up to 24 hours to live and you were looking back on your life, what what would you want you know what would kind of be mm. your on your epitaph if you like or you know what what would be your achievements and i guess it's a similar kind of thing isn't it is to say right well you know what do you want what you know what do you want to give back what do you want to leave behind not just the money but other particular memories of things you know that you have the opportunity to create while you're younger that's right how do you want to be remembered and what can you pass on to the next generation besides money mm. Yeah, you can can still pass on your wealth of knowledge and experience you can still pass on your your memories to the next generation who would probably really appreciate it yes yeah and I think we you know many generations take take the older generations for granted I think don't they um uh, until you exp- as you get older yourself then you realize um you know the difficulties the different times and different different experiences that you know your your parents your grandparents even your great grandparents in, mm-hmm. in some areas that we all we all are going through different times together at different points in our lives and and i think you know your book is great about bringing out those key messages for anybody you know financial planners included as well as uh, you know the wider public to think about you know to take time and think of the joyful things not just you know as you said it's not such a great subject to talk about but there there is joy in there isn't there that's right and um it the younger generation or the next generation can look back and and or look over uh, with fondness of what their their family has given them over the years. Yeah. And they can share a little bit in the experiences, if you save photographs, if you save momentums, if you save stories um, that you you can leave for them. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really interesting and definitely something that I think all of us should think more more about um, engaging with, um, you know, particularly if we've still got grandparents and parents that um, to learn some of the stories, um, you know, learn from those experiences, you know, before before they're all gone and it's too late. Um, so let's talk about something kind of related to all of this. And that is about, you know, your questioning skills and the kinds of questions that you might ask clients. And because I've noticed that there's quite been quite a rise in financial planners considering and seeking financial coaching um, and I just wondered whether you share some of your experiences of the kind of great coaching uh, and experiences that you've had. Um, how do you improve you know, the quality of those questions that you ask clients to get away from? Because I think I've come across quite a lot of planners who rely on the cash flow tool rather than using it as a tool. Yeah, and it, it is a tool. And I've seen... Um, advisors almost try to sell the cash flow as if it's a product and I've said to them well it's a tool you don't say to your clients I've got this financial calculator do you want to buy it (laughs) it's a tool like any other tool and it it acts as a trigger really to help you um, form questions frame questions um, and put issues back to the client 
So as I said at the beginning, my um, training as a probation officer was uh, amazing. The intense um, education that I had, you know, for example, I attended a four-week course at the Tavistock Institute of Marital Studies to um, help divorcing and separating couples because that was a role in the probation service which a lot of people are not aware of and that we we dealt with um, the children of divorcing and separating couples and adoptions we acted as guardian ad litem so we 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 worked uh, as part of a multidisciplinary team with NSPCC uh, Bernardo social services the prison and so uh, you were, you were going and, went and, and dealing with very, very difficult, very sensitive subjects. So you had to be very conscious of your own beliefs, your own prejudices, your own obstacles, your, your own psychological and mental obstacles as well. And this is one of the things that we were helped to learn on the course. I went on that course thinking I was normal, coming out thinking, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm sure most financial planners would do the same thing as well if they did that too. But that's, you know, we're, we're all different and we all, you know, are bringing the way that, you know, we've lived our lives, you know, colours how we behave, doesn't it? That's that's that nature of who we are, isn't it? And I guess it's about recognising those, you know, the biases and, you know, hurdles, as you say, and, and trying to set those aside so you can give impartial uh, advice or impartial support to to your clients and I think you know one of the things we've talked about um I think a few years back now was about um identifying when you have couples who come in you know who's the dominating partner mm-hmm. and how to deal with the 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 other partner who is you know the kind of quite shy retiring type who might be um you know, could be in a in you know in a perfectly happy relationship, could be in in a you know suppressed relationship, you know, potentially vulnerable. So, what what are the sorts of flags that that you know pop pop into your mind when you have experienced clients, you know, where one one of the parties is seems very t- dominant, doing all the talking, and the other one very quiet? Well, we always involve uh, both partners, and we always um, include um, both partners. And I'm very, very conscious of that, of including them and getting the quieter partner to open up and have a say uh, so we can understand, or all of us can understand how they feel about matters uh, and giving them room and space to do that. But it takes skill. I mean, my job as a probation officer was to counsel people and to help them solve difficult problems. But I wouldn't do that as a financial planner because I'm not a counsellor. I know my role. And I think the danger with some people going into coaching is that they overstep, can overstep the mark. Mm. You're there first and foremost as a financial planner. And though people may have relationship issues, you're not there to help them solve those relationship issues. Yeah. So it's just identifying what the, what the problems are um, what's got the dynamics between them yeah. it can be sometimes that the quieter person is actually the power behind the throne yes. and once they leave the office makes all the decisions anyway yeah and it's uh, it's recognizing that so you've got to be very good and um, people say i'm a good listener and i think okay you're a good listener but what do you hear yeah because you may everybody may hear different things 
and how good are you at non observing non-verbal behavior yes as as well um, and i guess that's been more become more difficult because of the pandemic if you've held client meetings on zoom i assume you can still do it on zoom because i had um a trainee planner sitting with me on Zoom and I said afterwards, did you notice that when you said such and such or when I said such and such, they looked away or they looked up in the sky or and they didn't notice? Mm, okay. Obviously, it is better face-to-face because yeah. you can use things on Zoom. Um, but yes, you've got to be... And that's why I say you can't have a discovery meeting longer than an hour, an hour and a quarter because if you're really giving that... Uh, you know, concentrated attention to, to the people it's difficult to to do more you'd feel just exhausted at the end of it yes and uh, you know I bet the clients probably feel you know a mixture yeah. of, of exhaustion and elation for, for yeah. being having your support too yeah so you know they they don't want to um to be involved in it for, for that much longer yeah. but um i think that meeting is so important that when we then have the cash flow strategy meeting and they engage in that and we come to all sorts of conclusions and they come to all sorts of conclusions about going forward, we just then send off a written plan with all the forms. So generally we have two meetings and the clients send back all the documents after that. Yeah. And you don't have any issues with them disappearing and saying, oh, they'll send things back and then not sending things back? No, we have a follow-up process. They might have a couple of queries um, that, you know, they might ring up or send an email. Yeah. We offer them, the if they want to go through the report with us, we offer them that uh, meeting, but very few people take it up because when they get the report, they know more or less what's in it. Yeah. Because we've gone through it with them. Yes. And I guess they see themselves in it, don't they? So when yeah. they see yourself in it, you think, yep, that's what I said. And it's owning it. That's the thing that we see. Some people initially might pay lip service to it, especially the expenditure questionnaire, although we try and preempt any sort of problems with that. And you can tell if you get round figures like it's a 200 for this and 100 for that, that they haven't really you know, paid a great deal of attention to it. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly the penny drops. The penny drops and they say, can we have that expensive questionnaire back? Because I think we could have added a few more things to it. And it comes back in great detail. And the clients who've been with us for a long time, we always get the figures back in detail. Yeah. yeah. Because they've owned it. They know it's about them and it's about their future. Yes. And I think that that's critical, isn't it, that you're saying about them owning it? Because I think as financial planners, the trap that many of us, or certainly I used to fall in um, when I was advising, is that I I present you with my financial plan on your affairs. But actually, it's that doesn't that isn't going to work, is it? No. In a word. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, uh, Marlene, we are out of time. Um, I just want to say that it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today and thank you for sharing all of your pearls of wisdom and your journey to to financial planning and beyond Um, and the very best of luck with your book. Now, I understand that you're going to have a big launch. Tell us all about that. When's that going to be in March? Uh, 30th of March and it will be in Cardiff. Uh, we've yet to finalise the details, but that's when we're hoping it will be, given COVID restrictions will be off then. Yeah. 
Well, so fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, and we wish yeah. you all the best. And thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you too, Jackie. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. It's really interesting, isn't it, to listen to other people's points of view about different things, all relating to our wonderful financial planning profession. If you know anyone who might be interested in listening to any of these podcasts, please pass on our details to them. So that's it from me. Join me again next time when we'll be talking all things Certified Financial Planner related and also dropping in on our new entrance to the financial planning profession. Bye for now.